HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today, I'd like to welcome back Nicole Vitello. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. So last time we had you on to talk bananas, and um, today we're going to be exploring the world of avocados. Yes. So I'm curious of all the um, produce in the world, how it was that your team decided avocados was where you wanted to be focusing your work. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think for us, it's often, you know, with, with fair trade, it's, it's primarily based on relationships. And so when it's often the producer group that we find that actually precedes the product, so we had um, this is great story about this group of producers in in Mexico, uh, Pragor, and they're located in uh, Michoacan, Mexico, which is a region uh, renowned for avocado production. And I don't know if you've noticed, I had sort of also noticed, I mean, the avocados have been sort of exploding on the market, I'd say, like in the last couple of years. You know, there's obviously, there's like the Subway campaign around avocados. There's places like Chipotle that lead with their avocado um, guacamole and all this other stuff. So avocados from Mexico have increased in the marketplace about 40% um, just last year alone. So it's interesting as I think you sort of look for this right mix in, in a new product between the producer story, the relevance in the marketplace, and the ability to reach consumers and move a certain amount of volume. So all that being said, um, you know, this, this group, Pragor, had been introduced to us by other fair trade organizations uh, in Canada who had been doing business with them. They were looking for solid partnerships and for, uh, you know, a way into the U.S. market. 
And, uh, yeah, we, we basically went, we talked to them for about a year uh, just, you know, to try to get to know each other and try to launch a, a stable program with the future. And uh, my colleague Jessica and I went down and visited them in Michoacan uh, back in June. And, you know, we visited the farms and really liked who they were and what they're trying to do. And, uh, yeah, then we just, we just launched the program in September. Now, um, because your your uh, you know email title has a backslash in it, maybe you can give us a little sense of the organization that you work for and how that your work falls across um, maybe more than one line. If that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So Equal Exchange is a um, is a hundred percent fair trade company uh, that has been around for about twenty six years. They primarily, um, Equal Exchange is primarily a coffee, primarily known as a coffee company, but then also has really strong programs in tea and chocolate. Uh, The whole base of the business, I mean, it's a worker-owned co-op, and basically the idea is to, to provide an alternative supply chain. So we're buying from small farmers organized into co-ops. We are a manufacturing co-op, and we often sell to co-op food stores. So it really is, uh, it sort of is a value chain as well as a supply chain, and your partners kind of come pre-recommended uh, because you're all sharing a, a unique set of values. So it really is pretty pretty radical still 25 years later and, and a really solid concept with which to choose your business partners. Um, so Equal Exchange uh, went into the, they, they sort of went into a joint venture in produce about, 2005, because produce is really not something that, you know, it's a very risky business and it's a very specialized business and requires a different sort of decision making and and sort of some quick thinking and and taking a tremendous amount of risk. I mean, coffee's awesome and I'm constantly jealous of a a 40% margin and and 18-month shelf life. You know, that's not (laughs) the the produce world at all. And, you know, the ability that people understand coffee's a, a luxury item. I mean, bananas are pretty far from a, a luxury item. You know, they're a staple in most of the world, and they've certainly always been a cheap commodity here. So when they went into the banana business, they, they, it was in, under a separate company. So we're literally almost a, a subsidiary of equal exchange. Um, and that's just to basically allow for some nimble decision-making and, and to mitigate the risk. Got it. That makes sense. Well, so I know that avocados are grown in a couple different parts in the world, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, anything particular to Mexico as opposed to other growing regions and if that factor, factored into your decision to focus on production in that area of the world or if it was more driving from the existence of um, the co-op that you identified that was already kind of in place in that region. Right. So I think our main um, our main goal in in the kind of uh, fair trade products that we go into is also not competing with domestic sources. Uh, you know, clearly there's a domestic fair trade movement out there, um, but if if co-ops and other food stores can get these products domestically, then in my mind, fair trade is another way to look at products that come from far away that you might want to apply the same values you have, you know, over joining a CSA or shopping at your farmer's market or knowing your farmer. So I think where avocados were concerned, you know, there's, there's clearly a very successful California avocado industry. Avocados do come from Florida. 
so as we saw the market evolve and you're seeing more and more products come from Mexico, you're also starting to see more fair trade products come out of Mexico. And so I think for us, um, there was this desire to, to kind of see what a different supply chain was and also really be part of that fair trade movement um, coming out of produce and trying to apply sort of the, the ethics, the integrity, and the values that we have into that system. Because um, it's often, you know, Mexico has turned into a large-scale agricultural supplier for the United States and in a lot of places where it used to just be California. Now there's often companies that have land holdings in California and Mexico. And like any other industry, it's becoming, you know, and, and has been for a while, increasingly consolidated and dominated by multinationals. So what we saw on the ground in Mexico and what you see, I think, often with uh, small farmers around the world is, there are, and we cl clearly saw this in bananas too, there are very large companies that are vertically integrated that control a lot of, um, a lot of the industry beyond just the production of the, of the fruit. So you have farmers growing fruit who are taking all the risk uh, around climate and you know, agriculture and all the things that can happen. And then you have these companies who have the ability to control packing sheds, processing areas, trucking, export, import, sales to, to large supermarket chains, um, and, and they, they have the ability to work the market, right? So, like, they'll go into the farm and say, hey, I'll buy all the fruit on your tree, right? And I might buy it for a low price, but you just sold all the fruit on your tree, and now you don't have to worry about it, right? So I'll buy small fruit, large fruit, really large fruit. I'll sell it as organic or conventional, you know, depending on certifications, obviously. But I have the ability to do all of this as a, as a large processor. I'll make the smaller fruit or the scarred fruit into guacamole. I'll do this. I'll do that. I mean, it's amazing when you look on the grocery store shelf. Like, I was just shopping in a grocery store. I saw, like, a half avocado peeled and vacuum sealed so you could just have it for lunch, like, already. So, like, that's even <laughs> another form of processing. You know, you're just right. like, God, whatever happened to these things that were in a peel that you could just take in your lunchbox and eat that way? You know, like, now it's encased in plastic. So it's a weird world out there, you know, and I think for these producers, part of fair trade is, you know, th there's a whole second tier of development in a co-op that isn't just, you know, and I, I don't mean to say just being a farmer because clearly that's a lot already, but, now, you know, if you, if you actually are able to export, now, you're, now you have a whole system of, you know, logisticians, you have people that are doing accounting, you have people that are doing certifications, you have this whole second tier of, of jobs that are skilled jobs. So maybe, you know, you're able to send your, your kids to college or university, and they're able to come back and work in the co-op in a way that isn't just an agricultural job. So that's really important. It's important for empowerment. It's important for producers. It's important for the community. And it keeps, you know, it, it allows for some, you know, hopefully some different kinds of, of business to go on in that community instead of just one player to one big other player to another big player. And then the consumer also doesn't have choices. Those choices are being made for them in a, in a totally different place at a totally different time that they're not involved in. So as the industry explodes, small farmers get pushed further and further from the table and large companies start making those decisions and consumers never knew that they even had a choice. Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking too about um, with regards to the economic development in this region. I mean, Michoacan is, you know, tierra caliente. It's the, yes. the drug trade 
is yeah. is huge and booming there. Obviously, uh, things that grow well in an avocado, you know, an avocado sure. growing climate. Sure. You know, there's other crops coming out of that region, and so providing a multitude of uh, employment opportunities uh, beyond just you know agriculture, I think, is important, especially when you're competing um, in such a contentious you know area of the world. And I wonder, did that give you guys pause too, or does that provide present any particular challenges? To your work, the fact that that region of the country is, you know, there's a lot of uh, scary stuff going on. No, definitely. Mexico is clearly the Wild West right now. I mean, it's it's like, yeah, I think when Jessica and I were pondering go, taking this trip, which, you know, we both felt was was an integral part of setting up this program. I mean, I think no matter what cultural differences or language differences or other things, when you're there in person, you get to, you get, it's like a character check, right? You're, you're basically seeing these people, seeing their operations, seeing if anything feels weird to you and or finding the places in which um, you can actually commit to a program together and a long-term partnership. So we felt the trip was important, but I'll have to tell you, the folks at Equal Exchange and our families were a little like, you're going where? To do what? You know, like that is not a tourist region at this point. And we definitely saw... You know, I mean, you see armored, I mean, you, you basically see these caravans of Mexican army militia who are, you know, traveling around the region, which most citizens feel is a good thing because the, the sort of federal government side of things in the Mexican army um, is, is a stabilizing force in the region, actually. But then you have, you know, municipal police and government who are often involved or you know, compromised slightly by the fact that, that there's a lot of um, illegal drug trade and Mexican mafia involved in the region. And so how do you, how do you navigate that, as you're saying, as an as a agricultural producer? Um, you know, you want your, your kids to be safe. You want your family to be safe. You want to be able to, to run a business. Obviously, people are, um, are lured away from rural areas um, or rural industry into this this um, more illicit trade because it's quick money. And, you know, quite frankly, we see this in inner cities around here. And, you know, you hear crazy stories about uh, you basically people operating in, like, national parks, you know, in illicit activities. And you see all these things that go on in, in a lack of economic opportunity. And I think we can certainly look to other regions and say that, and we look, can look to our own cities and see the same thing. And you can either become very despondent about that and say, well, what's the point? Like, this is where it's going, and people are always going to go for the easy money. Or you can say, you know what, even more so, there needs to be some aspect of community development because there will always be people that are looking for a more honest trade. And the downsides to that work is it's a pretty short lifespan, you know, and you're in a very dangerous um, a group of people and you've got a lot of illicit activity happening so you might make some quick money now but it's not a future so i think you know i think all we can really do is try to be part of the solution and provide alternatives for for folks in these areas and also provide an incentive you know if you think you're just going to be able to be a small farmer that might be able to own their own land you know, all of the producers we buy from own their own land. They control their own resources. They make their own business decisions. There's a pride and a and a respect and a dignity in that that I don't that I think sometimes. Hopefully, you don't have to make the choice between that and a positive income. But I think that actually is just as important as a material wealth in a lot of situations. 
Nicole, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, I want to uh, get back into focusing on the avocado and talk a little bit about what that uh, production looks like, the time, the scope, the scale. So hang tight. We are uh, going to be right back. You're listening to the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. You are listening to Let Me In by Snowmine here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are back. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. You've tuned into the Farm Report, and we are on the line with Nicole Vitello of Equal Exchange. We're talking avocados, so let's talk avocados. Um, you guys are are producing the Haas variety for your program. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it was. Yeah. I'm sorry. Do you, if you have no, I was just going to say. Yeah. Just, well, can you just kind of take us through it? Um, avocados grow from seed kind of what do they look like how long do they take um let's let's just kind of paint a picture for someone like myself who's never seen an avocado produce absolutely and this was my first foray into it um as well and in my mind it it brought it brought a lot of comparisons to you know i'm I'm from new england and was more uh, familiar with fruit farms and there actually is a lot of correlation you know between the two um they basically the 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 main means of, of production that you know you sort of see as you're driving down the road in Michoacan area you see a lot of nurseries for um, stock for new trees just like you would see a, a small sapling for like a peach or a pear or an apple tree and you know you see these nurseries everywhere and we're and it's it's a little bit shocking because you sort of say to yourself how can they possibly keep planting all of these these areas, which also means that certain areas are taken out of production and planted anew with um, with with new trees. So basically, the the lifespan of the tree can be anywhere you know up to forty or sixty years. We saw on some of these farms the um, the original Haas avocados that were planted in Mexico. Um, now you and they're they're tremendous. I mean, the trees are enormous, and and the fruit. Um, you know they're just loaded with fruit, but but that's that's sort of a rarity. As you would see some really old fruit trees in New England, that might be that old. But they start to get diseased. You start to get less production. It's difficult to fertilize. You know the tree itself becomes uh, less less able to move nutrients from the roots up to the the high branches just due to how a tree gets old. Um, so basically. What you're starting to see more and more of in Mexico, I mean, traditionally, you would plant the trees, say, like 10 or 15 feet apart. You would leave enough space for airflow and, and fertility and, you know, to keep uh, weeds and grass down around them. And, and they, they would, you know, sort of, they're often planted on a hillside 
Um, in this area of Mexico, the reason I believe it's so prized is there's a fair amount of altitude, so you get cooler nights, warmer days. Um, that kind of dramatic change in temperature usually adds to the, the oil production and the fruit and, and a more concentrated flavor as well as um, I think that's what's prized about this fruit from Mexico versus, you know, they plant avocados in Peru, Chile. We talked about California. But, but still, I think the Mexican avocado has always been known for its quality. Um, and it, there, were, there are plenty of other varieties that, that grow, that are indigenous to Mexico and, and grow there. The Haas variety was an imported variety. Um, it's, I think, you know, like bananas, right, we have the Cavendish, that's only one variety, but it's one variety because it works for all the things we ask it to do. You know, it stays green for a certain period of time, it ripens on schedule, it's the same size, it's the same shape. I think for the world now knows the Haas avocado as the industry standard, but there are other varieties, you know, that are more a combination of kind of the, the Florida avocado we see with the, with the smooth skin and the lighter green, brighter color that you also often see grown in the DR and other places. Um, there are those varieties in Mexico as well, but for export, clearly Haas is king. Um, what they've done now is uh, you often see grafted fruit where it's on um, a, a more native root stock, and then they graft the avocado, uh, the Haas avocado sort of sapling into that, and the, it grows off the roots of that, that might be more um, adapted to the area, and then the, the fruit itself is the Haas variety. So that's, that's what we saw mostly when we were there. Um, you're also seeing more concentrated production uh, where, you know, almost like you're starting to see some tree fruit grown organically that way where it's planted really close together. Um, it's almost on a, on a trellis system. The trees are heavily pruned, and they're not expected to last 40 years, right? The fertility in the area that they're grown on could not support that. But you're trying to get intense production uh, maybe in 10 years, and then you're going to rip those trees out, and you're going to plant something else, or you're going to replant. So what that will do to production coming out of Mexico, what will happen in the future, is there going to be an oversupply, which will kill the market price and all of that, I think remains to be seen. Interesting. And then for uh, for the organic certification process, now does that mean for something to be labeled as, you know, USDA inspected organic when it comes into the States, uh, how does the U.S. government ensure organic production methods uh, at the site or at the source, and how does that kind of impact the farmers that you work with? Right. So the, the farmers themselves, there is an inspection process. Um, it, like Usually like about a week, like we place an order. They are planning to harvest the fruit the following week. In that um, meantime, they have a USDA inspector who comes to the farm and basically label, you know, checks out the trees, and they're checking for disease and for insects and for anything that might linger or, or affect the fruit production that could potentially hurt the industry in California. So there's, it's not as much an element of, of trade restriction as it is agricultural restriction to protect an industry we have here. I'm sure sometimes it ends up working the other way, but for the most part, it's it's based on the health of the trees, um, and they sort of cordon off an area and say these trees um, are, are you know are are, are what's 
what's the word I'm looking for, approved for export to the United States. Mm -hmm. So then they go in and they harvest from those trees, and then there's a second tier of inspection that happens at the packing shed. Um, So there, there's another USDA inspector who's looking at, you know, there's, there's, there um, categorizations around the quality of the fruit, like category one is perfect quality fruit. In conventional, there's category one and category two might be, you know, it has a scar, it has this misshape, it has this. So that's how they categorize it for sale and for, you know, sort of record keeping. Then with organic, there's only one category which might start, which is essentially the category two for conventional. So, you know, what you start you started to see also in the market, some of these really small avocados that are bagged, you know, in a mesh bag or something like that, that you'll see at a grocery store or at a Trader Joe's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Those are often the smaller sizes that might have a scar or two, but when you couple them together and sell them in a, a bagged price, it works for people. So they've, there's a lot more opportunities around how to market that, that stuff, but the, the restrictions are definitely there. Um, the protection for, for domestic agriculture and the conditions under which uh, Mexican fruit can come into the U.S. are pretty highly regulated. Um, and I think we've had less – I mean, we, with bananas, you get into a lot of issues when they, cross the, when they come into the port system because they're coming from places, as we've discussed, you know, that are also hot areas, you know, Peru, Ecuador, um, Colombia, and so there's we we were used to a, a pretty high level of examinations and customs and border protection and USDA and all of these different agencies that are trying to protect our industry, basically both agricultural and otherwise. And it's a pretty daunting job to do that. Um, so now they cross the, in from Mexican produce, they cross over a border in uh, in Texas, and because of that regulation, um, there's far less issues crossing the border because they've been sort of pre pre-screened yeah exactly they've been like pre-certified or whatever so i'm wondering you know so there's obviously a multitude of inspection points before it leaves the country as it enters the as it enters the u.s and then as it's distributed throughout the u.s um and with regards to the um the the different um categories of uh quality you know the quality markers whether it's a uh, you know, a, a one, a two, a three for the avocados. How do those um, markers and the need for multitudes of inspections, how do those impact the price that a farmer is getting paid for their fruit? And what is the level of control that farmers in your co-op have over the price that they're paid? And, and how is that the same or different from if they were selling into a more conventional system? Right. So the, the, the main issue, I think, is that because so it's always so funny, the work that we do, right? We're, we're trying to do this produce. You know, we're trying to, to be a produce company, but at the same time, change trade and educate consumers. And, you know, it's like we're, we're basically moving on all these different levels. And, and some of this does have an impact on the market. I mean, basically right now, the two most common sizes that you see in the supermarket, they refer to as a 48 or a 60. And that's basically the number of actual avocados that fit into a 25-pound box. So if a store is selling, and, and, you know, the way the pricing system is now at the store level is you often see avocados sold by the each, right? So two for $3 or $2 each or, you know, some system like that. It's not by the pound. So the sizing is kind of, I would say, downplayed in that, and that's often where distributors or stores make up their margin, 
you know, if the price is cheap, they can sell a larger avocado for that same price. If the price goes up, then they can sell a smaller avocado for that same price and make up their margin. So there's a lot of, of sort of ins and outs in the market that are based on some element of speculation. Is the price and the price is volatile? I mean, this this fall in September when we started, the price was really really high uh, for producers on the on the market. They were getting a lot because the supply was really low, and California season kind of tapered off a little early. So people were getting crazy money for for fruit, and the consumers were probably feeling the weight of that, or distributors and stores were getting squeezed in the middle. Now you start to see the market dropping kind of precipitously, I mean, by $10 a week, by more than that. And often that's the game, the agricultural speculation game that goes on in there. Distributors either take more of a margin now and they took less of a margin before because they're trying to make up the difference. So there's, there's, it's a, there's a whole industry in there that's, that's, um, it, that works over a program for distributors, for consumers, and, you know, it can also work for the producers. But you have to know the market, and you, you really are kind of gambling a little bit in terms of where you're going to make up your margin and where – and produce is like that. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a risky business, and you sometimes have to move fruit quickly, and, and like, you'll, you'll do what you need to do to get that, to get that fruit moving. And, and certainly farmers do it as well. You know, if I have a bumper tomato crop this year, I know I'm going to try to move more of it at a lower price because I need to move volume. So it, it's all part and parcel of the business. But I think on the producer end, where so this kind of brings us back to why do you need fair trade? Or what does fair trade fill in this market? And what it does is it, it tries to take to address that issue of volatility. Because what it says is the producer is, not, is always going to get this minimum price. So when the market drops out, there's some insulation that it won't ever go below this price. Now, it certainly is going to generally ride above that price because the market, you know, supply and demand, but it, it allows for some, I mean, as a producer, you need something to project towards. Right. You know, I think I'm going to make this much this year. I know what my costs are. You know, with organic production, your costs are higher and you get less yield, so you need to be able to factor that in as well. So if you have no idea what the market is going to do, I mean, it's a pretty easy way to lose your shirt, and who's going to go into that as a producer? You know, like, again... That's even more space for the, the larger companies who can consolidate and who can ride that market better. And, I, and in my opinion, that's where the market is headed more and more. So if we, if we as a company can't provide an alternative to that, both for producers and consumers, and try to address some of that, but we're clearly like a tiny, tiny player in all of this, right? So we might lose our share before we can even talk to people about what we're trying to, to do here because the – and I think if we waited to get into this, honestly, Aaron, like we wouldn't have an opportunity. You know, I think now is the time to start showing, you know, just as the local food movement has done, just as organic has done, and just as fair trade has done in other commodities, I think that's why the, the, we're on some battleground here to try to say, hey, you know, there needs to be some uh, common understanding around some parameters for this speculative nature of this business and can we add any element of stability into this so everybody sort of knows where the money is going and we have some you know some realm in which to move yeah to make plans well unfortunately we're just about out of time i have kind of two questions i'm going to try and squeeze in here real quick one kind of harkening back to some of the uh increase in con avocado 
consumption that we've seen. I want to talk a little bit just uh, about the Subway ad. You know, I was really struck to see that last year, you know, Subway celebrating avocado season. And I'm just curious, was that tied to a real season or was that tied to, I mean, I made the assumption that there was maybe a, a bunch of avocados on the market that they were able to purchase cheaply for some period of time or that they recognized, you know, U.S. consumers were really interested in avocado. But I was curious if there was an agricultural reality to that campaign. And I would and, and I don't know the the answer to that. I would say my assumption on that is it, it was it, so the the good thing about the avocado production about the avocados are just better now, right? You can get more of them. They're in better shape. They're, some of them are preconditioned, so they're ripe and ready to eat. You know, it, it's, it, it used to be like you would buy an avocado, and they were expensive, and half the time it would be kind of rotten inside. And, you know, you would say, I've always thought this about both mangoes and avocados. They're the two items that people continually go back to the store and buy at a pretty expensive, you know, $2 each or something. And then when it's bad, there's often this thought of like, oh, I didn't pick the right one. Mm -hmm. Right. Or it's me. Like I didn't do something right. Whereas people will go back to the grocery store and return all sorts of stuff that that isn't good. But it seems like avocados kept selling and and mangoes keep selling. And you're like, oh, I just didn't pick a good one. Maybe next time. Right. Or whatever. (laughs) But now I think you start to see a lot better avocados out there. And I think part of that has to just do with more supply. And, and actually more sales of avocados. So volume does drive a lot of these, um, a lot of these imports because, you know, if you know you're going to sell volume, the fruit is fresher, it moves faster through the system, it's, it hasn't hung around as long, and, and you're, you basically can get fresher supply in more continually. So I think probably coupled with the fact that, that imports from Mexico were up so considerably last year, um, and continue to be that the Subway campaign was both about health. I mean, avocados are one of the healthiest uh, fruits out there, um, was about their sort of their mission around um, a healthier product and trying to differentiate themselves as a, as a company around a product that, uh, that fit the bill. So, so I think it was timing mostly. Okay, that makes sense. For folks who want to make good avocado choices when they're heading to the supermarket, what are they looking for? I mean, to to if they're interested in purchasing, you know, fair trade av- fair fair trade avocados or is there like what are the markers aside from organic or non-organic that we should be seeking out? Yeah, so I think your first choice is just that is is you know supporting organic production, and I think for a lot of people that say, oh well, you know it has appeal, it's not on the dirty dozen list, you know maybe I don't really need to buy that organic. Is just to think about the larger picture of the people that are living in areas that are that are producing these commodities, and you know the impact on our sort of general environment for that kind of thing. So organic is still an important choice. And um, and knowing, letting stores know that you're looking for an organic option makes them more likely to carry it. And then I, I do think any sort of alternative option around fair trade or asking about the company, you know, looking a little bit, as I would say in anything, like looking a little bit into the company, the brand, you know, is this sort of what you want to support, maybe asking your store if they've ever thought about carrying an alternative. I mean, our we've gotten a lot of great support on the store and consumer level for this product. Um, and I think people are looking for alternatives. It's now the avocados are on their radar. There are more choices. People understand that it's a product they're already paying, you know, a, a decent amount for. So 
as long as we can keep the price point in a place that works for people that may be spending a little bit more, but knowing having the benefits of traceability and accountability and transparency in the supply chain, you know, I think that there's room out there for that. So I think as the market continues to evolve, consumers will have more choices and, and just getting educated a little bit about what those choices are and talking to your store. And this is where co-ops and natural food stores do a great job, right? There's a staff in there that's educated about their products. You can go in and ask them and, and have a discussion, and that's what they're good at. Awesome. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, for folks who want to learn more about the Avocado Project um, and the Banana Project that we had Nicole on to speak about um, a little bit earlier this year, definitely visit the website, www.beyondthepeel.com. Lots of great info, some videos and article links there to, to check out, worth checking out. Um, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Farm Report. Uh, this, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free. You can find us on iTunes or on Stitcher Smart Radio or visit the website www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you like what you hear, and um, I'm pretty sure that you will, definitely click that Donate tab, become a member today at the $120 level. We would love to send you a free and awesome tote bag. So, so definitely consider that. Tune in next week to the Farm Report. We'll be chatting with Ben Flanner of the uh, Brooklyn Grange, kind of doing a little season recap and wrap up. Uh, worth a listen, Thursdays at 1 o'clock for the Farm Report. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.